Hello, this is Gavin Esler. I'm here to tell you that Series 2 of the award-winning podcast The Big Steel will be launching during September. In this special three-part series, we'll explore what's happened in Russia since we last spoke in spring 2020. What does Russia's imprisonment of Alexei Navalny and treatment of his supporters tell us? How has Putin continued to erode democracy? And how does the West respond if, as he's planning, Putin stays in power until 2036? We'll be speaking to the world's foremost experts and uncovering the truth behind Putin's crimes as he continues to perpetrate the big steal. In the meantime, I'd like to point you towards another podcast made by the same team at Fresh Air Production. Taking Apart Terror is a 10-part series presented by former British soldier Adnan Sarwar, who served in the Iraq War. Across 10 episodes, Adnan speaks to experts to learn about every aspect of how terrorist organisations operate, how they're funded, how they communicate and the role of women. He discovers what's really going on behind the scenes and what the world is doing to stop them. Here's a taster of the podcast. If you like it, please do listen and subscribe by searching for Taking Apart Terror on your podcast app. Okay, so now we've got three definite groups, names we all know. We've got the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and the many names of ISIS, ISIS-K, Daesh, whatever you want to call them. So you've got Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS. But for a lot of us, we don't know much more than the names. Shiraz, can you give us a quick guide? What are these groups thinking? What are they trying to do? And how do they relate to each other? There's probably two key points, right? Al-Qaeda starts this process of what you'd call global jihad, fighting the world in an attempt to have sort of extraterritorial jihadi aims and aspirations. I think Al-Qaeda, through what we can see um, in places such as Mali and in in northern uh, Syria, has been on a journey, in essence, to recoil a little bit and to move back towards what might be called the localized jihadi campaigns that we saw in the 1990s in Algeria or with the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, um, and to an extent the Taliban as well uh, in the 1990s. So you can say, in a sense, that jihadism has reverted to a a localized um, kind of aspiration where these actors are seeking to govern within the kind of confines of the, of the nation states in which they're operating. So you could almost say it's like an Islamo-nationalism, if we want to, to, to call it that. Islamic State remains the last, you could say, or the only at the moment, of the global jihad uh, movements, which still regularly talks about conquering Rome and Constantinople and having its uh, members march through the streets of Paris in conquest. I mean, that, you know, kind of iconography. So when you strip it all down, ultimately, this comes down to your understanding about your relationship or your group's relationship with power. The Islamic State would accuse the Taliban of heresy, of betrayal, to have negotiated with the United States to seek diplomatic and international recognition, to work within the internationalist system. It's all anathema to Islamic State. So there are these gradations. And I think if you put the Taliban at that spectrum now of the Islamo-nationalist movement and Islamic State at the global jihad end of the spectrum, where Al-Qaeda sits today is probably still the most interesting question. Because yes, it is on a journey. It is becoming pragmatic in what it wants to do. But pragmatism doesn't mean moderation. I suppose if those were the two poles, the Taliban and Islamic State on, on our spectrum, then Al-Qaeda is kind of floating somewhere uh, between the two. 
And Nabi? Taliban uh, has a duality. One is their policy folks sitting in Qatar and, you know, or in Islamabad, if you will, taking policy guidance. Then there's the everyday Talib, the, the guy who, who fights. If you really strip it down, they're not ideologically very different from ISIS or, or Al-Qaeda because they still do go back to this classic idea that there is no borders in, in the Islamic Caliphate. The Ummah, the whole of the Muslim community, are one. You know, they, somebody mentioned that um, the ISIS were looking down upon the Taliban when they started negotiating with the U.S. That's the political story we hear. But then you hear, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda and its affiliates group all congratulating um, the Taliban warmly on their victory. What does it say? It says we share something in common. I believe that Taliban are the most important actor when it comes to these groups. Sudaf, you know, I, I spoke to the Taliban uh, myself last last week, and they said it's going to be okay for female journalists. It's going to be, you know, this is Taliban 2.0. What would you say to that? That simply is not correct. The reporter that interviewed the Taliban live on air on Tolo just left for the fear of her life last week. And that was their indication to the international community and to the local population that they were willing to work with female journalists. The reality is that is not correct. My female counterparts here, local journalists in Afghanistan, do not feel safe to report on the field. They cannot do a live on a street in Kabul because they will be attacked by the Taliban. There is no support for them. For foreign journalists such as myself, there is incredible support. They had an off-the-record meeting with us and my male counterparts, asking us how we can uh, work with them and if there's any support we need on the ground. And within the end of the meeting, we were all given a paperwork to show any Taliban member on the street that we are freely able to move uh, across Kabul and even the provinces without receiving any threats or any backlash. But Afghan journalists do not get the same level of security. They are really putting women at the back in terms of whether it be education, journalism, doctors are leaving. This Taliban contingent does not support women in the reality. It's not what we're seeing on the ground. Shiraz Sudaf is saying that she is not seeing any of this new Taliban, but you think they're, they're going to do things differently this time? It's clear to me that the Taliban does regard this as a moment uh, and an opportunity. So I think the Taliban will look now to uh, reach out at some level. You will probably see this duality of approach. So the way they treat Afghanis, try to run their society, I think we will see some regression back to what we might call the old Taliban. But there's certainly a slicker version that is sitting there that's outward facing, that is trying to suggest this is a more moderate, it's a more sort of thinking movement now than it has been in the past. And you can see that with you know, this very savvy English-speaking spokesman who's been put up on Al Jazeera several times since uh, the Taliban's uh, come back. It's, you know, it's a shock to see. Well, talking about spokespeople or PR and propaganda, there's an obvious media opportunity right now, isn't there? 20 years since 9-11. Do you think they're going to take advantage of that? The Taliban are, of course, uh, they're happy. 
they are cheering the US withdrawal, they are, you know, in a sense, intelligently trolling the United States. Taliban's got a lot to do right now, right? So they are confronted with the challenge of actually governing. And, and you know, it's not the most exhilarating thing or I think that lends itself most readily to, to propaganda. I don't think they've got anything to necessarily gain out of making hay or celebrating 9-11, you know, two decades on. And, and Nabi? They were fully engaged in propaganda once they had one or two districts. And then when they had provincial capitals, the propaganda went through the roofs. So their past records show that they rely on propaganda heavily and they have had much success. So for anyone to think that they're not going to exploit this one, uh, to, you know, to show the world the Taliban really want to remove American memory from that landscape. Uh, now, they also get a lot of support from some of the regional actors. Uh, I think in the way to cause humiliation for the U.S. and for the West in general, uh, the incidents uh, that occurred uh, at the airport, the broader aspects really had to do with political behind-the-scenes staging uh, the U.S. was not to leave clean. Sudaf, is this anniversary important? The Taliban are trying to really remove the American footprint here. So I'm not quite sure whether they will be really focusing on 9-11 here because they want to remove the American stamp from Afghanistan. And also, away from the Taliban, Afghans here are actually really quite tired of the significant pull the Americans have had and the damage that they've done to the country. If you ask somebody that wasn't even born during 9-11, but they are still very aware of the damage that that event caused the country and their parents, I think the Taliban are very strategic here. They're trying to look at their comms for that day to see how should they really approach that. I think, to be honest with you, they're going to be very strategic. I don't think it's going to be a significant focus. Emerita, what do you think? This is a huge boon for just the global jihadist movement in general. I would agree with Sadaf that I think the Taliban is going to be very strategic about this. You know, they want the U.S. footprint off of Afghanistan soil and they need, you know, some level of, of Western cooperation, of U.S. cooperation, of international cooperation. So I think they're going to play this very strategically. But at the same time, foreign fighters, Al Qaeda, ISIS, you know, other uh, terrorist groups are going to really, you know, I see potentially pose a threat on 9-11 and after that, because they see this as a huge victory, huge propaganda, huge recruitment tool, and an empowerment of, of their soldiers. So what's emerging here is a really fascinating picture of a process that is moving really quickly and is very complicated, and nobody can predict what's going to happen next. But let's try. The one question that many people are probably asking is, what does this mean for the safety of the world? Has the risk increased? Shiraz, are we in more danger? So I've been saying to everyone, you know, in the context of these debates, that that's not a question you can ask. It doesn't have an answer. Because what metrics are we going to use to judge? Are we safer? Do I think parts of Afghanistan will become slightly more accommodating and become slightly more permissive environment for, you know, uh, unsafe reactors, for terrorists to train uh, and so on? Yes, I think... Uh, you know, that's always been one of the worries, having these safe havens where attack planning and so on can take place. However, is it in the Taliban's interest to allow 
a group to really proliferate in their territory today that wants to pull off another 9-11 tomorrow? Of course not. My opinion clearly that, that the uh, jihadist movement more generally, of which the Taliban is, is one part, has learned over the last two decades that if you can avoid sucking the West into a war in your local region, that localism aspect of the jihadist current, then, then you've generally got a pretty good ability to sustain a, a project there and a governance project there. So the Taliban really has something uh, that it's always craved. It's holding more territory now than it ever has done. So they would be incredibly foolish. That doesn't prevent wildcards, right? And it doesn't prevent people who may wish to use that territory and go and do something the Taliban has no oversight of. So it's um, the classic academic answer, six of one and half a dozen of the other. Um, I, I think you're right. You know, the Taliban have managed to get something they didn't think they were going to get and they don't want it broken. Emerita, what do you think? Do you think we're going to get another 9-11? I think we are less safe. Um, I think the Kabul attack is an example. I mean, it was a, it was a target and, and ISIS-K was able to take advantage of that. The withdrawal will have an immense impact in terms of global security, U.S. security. The, the threats will no longer be coming from the Taliban, but we have ISIS-K. We have sort of a witch's brew in the region, Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, that I think could really uh, be threatening to, uh, to global security. And I also think that, you know, without boots on the ground, um, intelligence, counterterrorism operations are certainly taking a hit. So now there's going to be this over-the-horizon or offshore counterterrorism approach that's going to be very different from what we're used to. And so I think that's also going to provide some groups with the operational space to recruit, to train, and to, and to plot attacks. I'd like to thank Sudaf Chowdhury, Emerita Torres, Nabi Sahak, and Shiraz Meir for their insight into this complex and dynamic situation happening in Afghanistan right now for our special edition of Taking Apart Terror. Search for us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the series, please do leave us a star rating and a review. It makes a huge difference to how many people find us. And of course, follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Adnan Sawa. Till the next time, goodbye.